This is Scott Richmond and Arnie Sherman. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, good Sunday morning. Good Sunday morning to you, Scott. You know, we're on our Sunday's morning summer schedule, so we haven't been in here every week. And so it's good to be, one, back in the studio with you, two, to have such an interesting guest as my longtime friend, Dr. Vadim Levitin, who's going to join us today in a few minutes. Exciting. This is, he is a thrice, or how many times has he been a guest before on our show? He's been a guest Five a couple, a couple, no, only a couple of times, but it's been, it's been a- Four. Four times. Four times. He's been a guest four <laughs> times on the show, but never in person, never live in the studio here. No, one time live, one time, Arnie. Really? I know that, yeah. My mind's going there. My- <laughs> I have him confused with another doctor that I All see that less often. <laughs> but, but to refresh our viewers who maybe didn't see the show, you know, Vadim is, is a medical doctor. He was born in what was then the Soviet Union. He went to medical school in Russia. He was in the Soviet Air Force. And then when Jimmy Carter was president, there was a little thaw in the relationship between the U.S. and uh, the Soviet Union, and Vadim and his, and his family were able to uh, immigrate to the United States under very harrowing circumstances. It took them several years, and their life was always, you know, in jeopardy, and, uh, you know, they were in jeopardy of, uh, you know, being incarcerated. Came to the United States, basically put his finger on a map and pointed to uh, a place, and they ended up in, uh, in Kansas City, you know, uh, as a home. All worlds lead to Kansas right. City. All you know, and over too. the years, he's, you know, he's been involved in the medical field. He's been involved in the hospitality industry. He's been a leader in electronic commerce and in AI and in a lot of technology things. And now he's the chairman of the board of the newest medical school in the United States. That's amazing. So we have a lot of things, I think, to talk to him about. One is, you know, his whole life and how he got to the United States. is always an interesting story about, uh, you know, immigrant family that arrived here, particularly one, you know, that, that arrived here um, 43 years ago. Sure. Secondly, uh, talk about what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. There's nobody that would have a better perspective on that right. that we could have on the show than somebody who was From born there. and reared in that area. Absolutely. And, and spent a lot of time in both of those areas. And then we can also talk about healthcare. There's a lot of similarities between what's happening in rural America, between Montana and other places like Kansas, and, and the need for uh, physicians in the primary care area and the emergency area and some other areas. And, and Vadim has his fingers on the pulse of the, all of that. Exciting. I can't wait. This is, it's always great to welcome back a guest, and so much has happened since the last time Vadim was here. Which I don't remember, so that's, it'll be like a, a brand new show it'll for be me. A, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back after this with our guest, Dr. Vadim Levitin. Back after this. The Sherman, we are back with our guest, Vadim. Dr. Vadim Levitin, for purposes of this show, we're going to call you Vadim. Vadim, how are you? I'm great, and I'm glad you could pronounce that name. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it happens to me all the time, especially when I play golf. I hit the ball, and I think I can find it, because how many balls are going to be named Vadim? Right. There are hundreds, usually. I get to the fairway, they're like, every ball I find says Vadim, Vadim, Vadim. So I don't know if it's just popular name, or am I losing that many balls? You're losing that many balls. <laughs> it's not that popular name. But you've, you've, uh, you're visiting us from Las Vegas, the heat capital of America, or one of the heat capitals. What was it yesterday when you left? It was 110, but it's dry heat. It's a dry, <laughs> dry heat, dry cold. Yeah. I was reading about police officers who were making hamburgers in their car. Oh, really? In their in, cars. In Highway Patrol 
guys, and I think they were in Arizona, actually. Yeah, Phoenix. Grilling burgers in the inside of their cars that was that warm. That kind of heat uh, allows you to recognize that you can sweat in places you didn't know would sweat. Am I right about that? <laughs> right. Yes. So I want to start by talking a little bit about your journey to the United States. You know, immigration is always a tough topic. And people, you know, have very strong feelings about immigration. You know, we have the state of Texas, which has put in, you know, basically razor blades in the water to keep, uh, you know, immigrants from coming in here. Uh, your pathway was a little bit different coming out of the Soviet Union. So would you describe that a little bit for us? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I'm not an immigrant. I was a refugee. Yeah, that's that's true. There's a distinction between that. There's Although many of the people at the Mexican border are also refugees, but, they Absolutely. Had, but the Texas government doesn't recognize the <laughs> distinction, apparently. Yeah. Well, but anyway, uh, you were uh, a refugee. President Carter had a particular articulation of what refugee meant during those years. That was a while back. And uh, so we qualified as refugees. And getting into the country wasn't a big issue. Getting out of Soviet Union was a big issue. Sure. As soon as you're out, you, you're going to live. <laughs> Once you were out, it's, you know, it's all the future. But uh, if you're not out, then you just never knew when and how you're going to end up. Well, because one of the things that I know is as soon as you declared that you were going to be a refugee, you got yourself into a, a real catch-22 with the Soviet government, which you can explain to our listeners. Absolutely. Basically, you're what they called then refuseniks. Right. Because <laughs> you're, you're, they put your documents into refuse file. You're not going anywhere. And um, <laughs> basically, they're saying and you also cannot be a member of any organization. You cannot have a job. You cannot belong to any club. You, you, you're kind of a persona non grata. And if you can't have a job, that's sort of against the law. That's against the law in Soviet Union. It was against the law in Soviet Union. That's why they, they had full employment, because they would make you work. Right. And they would find the work. If you don't want it, they'll right. make you work. So it was a daunting experience for your parents with, with you know, younger children to declare you know, refugee status. Your father had a very good job, lost his job as a result. And without having a job, they could arrest you technically at any time. Is that correct? Absolutely. And you have no ways of uh, making a living. What did your dad do? My dad was an engineer and um, a talented one. But, uh, you know, financially, it wasn't a financial uh, immigration at all. In our case, uh, I come from a relatively wealthy family in the context of Soviet Union. Right. So my dad had enough cushing to stay without a job for a long time. I that see. wasn't necessarily an issue. The issue was that um, since I went to medical school, I was an Air Force lieutenant in reserve. So that one of the first things they do, they call you in from reserve. You say you're not in reserve anymore. You're going in, which meant that you'd never come back. Oh, my God. <laughs> they would say, in those days, where were the possible places they could have sent you? Far. Afghanistan. Yes. Well, you have 11 time zones in the country. Uh, it's very easy to lose people there. God knows they've done it for centuries. They, they lost many people in the 11 time zones. So, and then something happens to you, and they go like, oops, you know, he just didn't right. come back. Um, so needless to say, I, I spent several years trying to avoid being in the Russian military. That took a lot I've of succeeded. skill. That took a lot of skill and a lot of money. Um, uh, thank God it's a very corrupt society. Was there fear? Did you have fear during when you were emigrating? Or? Well, I was in my early 20s, and I think in my early 20s, I 
had no fear of anything. Uh, that changed since then. Right. But I think when you're in your early twenties, I I really couldn't care. I just said I want out of here, so it didn't matter to me. And in the things that you saw when you came over here, I imagine some of them were really unpleasant. Uh, not for me. Uh, I came straight to Kansas City. Ah. Uh, I got a so job. You weren't witness to anything. Sorry to interrupt, but no. that's good. I, I came to uh, Kansas City, got a job at Bethany Medical Center within a month, and it was awesome. And, and you didn't uh, speak English when you came. Uh, well, I thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't think it would stop me. But, uh, yeah, I had a rotation in the emergency rooms where you basically have 15 seconds until your patient as a critical situation. So no one really cares if you speak English or not. And it's very healthy. Uh, I think I recommend it highly to anyone. Just go to work in an emergency room. Whatever language you want to learn, you're going to learn it within a few months. <laughs> but was that... they, they just yell at you and go like, they don't care if you understand it or not because your patient is dying. <laughs> so you get it really fast. But you're observing a lot. When you first came over here, you're observing, you're listening a lot. And... Trying to assimilate, I imagine. Oh, that's a great question. Um, my, th this is I'm one of the few people who can identify the best year of your life. That first year was the best <laughs> year of my life uh, because everything was new and exciting, as if you're a child, but you're not a child. Everything, everything. You TV, know. music, restaurants, people, everything. P people would say, "Hey, Vadim, let's go have pizza." I go like great, what's a pizza? But, <laughs> you know, you'd go have pizza. And then go, have you had a taco? I go, taco, is that food? You go, yes. So everything was exciting on a regular basis, every day. And they go like, how about this one? And I go like, great, okay, let's do that. Sure. You know, have you done bowling? And go like, bowling? Sure. Let's try it. That's how do we do that? So it's, it's, it's a thrill all the time. All the time, you're just afraid to go to sleep because it's not that interesting. Because you're exploring and learning. Did you? Did any family or friends come over after you and the, your family emigrated out? To yes, many years later. And uh, how were they coming over? Was it a more was it a more advanced, let's say, sophisticated system to come over through than the one you did, um, or similar? I, they probably had different personal personal experiences. Oh, I okay. suspect. Um, why? Personal experience was based on. I always said, there's a there's there's several ways of moving into the United States. You could move from whatever that is, China, Mexico, whatever the country is, yeah. and you could choose. It's a choice. You could choose to be Chinese person who happened to live in America. You could be Italian person who happened to live in America, or you could choose to be an American who happened to be born somewhere else. Right. And it is a choice that individuals make. Um, in my case, that choice was easy. I made it before I came here. <laughs> so I was uh, rooting for the American hockey team uh, back when I was in Moscow. Right, right, right. That. <laughs> so it was already there. I already made up my mind. Um, Talk about a time to come over. Yes, right absolutely. Russia and USA played hockey in the Olympics. Right. Yes. And now, so you rooted for the USA in that game? I did. That's yes, amazing. That's, uh, and Vadim played hockey as a boy, so he was, that was his sport. Absolutely. And they kicked me out of basketball <laughs> because, uh, for obvious reasons, I'm not six feet uh, at all. Um, so they kicked me out of basketball in sixth grade. And I said, but I'm good. Like, yeah, you're very good, but just go play something else. But hockey was excellent for a shorter person. Sure. Because uh, when you tackle them, 
it's how good you are on ice. Yeah. And the bigger they are, actually, the, the harder they fall. I have a question about immigration again. Yes, sir. Um, are you, so you see how polarized our country is and how one side is fearful of people immigrating or, you know, crossing our borders. What's your observation of, A, people that are fearful of that, and are you ever trying to put yourself into the shoes of the people that are coming from Central and South America or Mexico over to our country and how they must feel? And what's that experience like? What must they be experiencing? Yeah, I, I think the nature of their desire to be here is very different from the one I had. I'm not sure I can identify with them that well. I'm, I didn't move for economic reasons. It's not that I wanted a job. Right. Uh, or wanted to take care of my family somewhere else. Right. And send them money to where that. I just didn't want to live in a totalitarian regime. It was more of a political and a religious freedom. I'm not Russian. I'm Jewish. Right. So if I was Russian, I probably would have stayed. <laughs> Maybe not, but I, right. I think it's possible. So I, I'm not sure I can claim the kind of, you know, right. brethren identification right. with, with many people. They're they living for, for different, different reasons. They're living for different reasons. Um, certainly have empathy and compassion for humans. Sure. It's, it's a hard hard thing to do. And um, did you encounter, but you didn't encounter the type of um, opposition that half of the country has to immigrants when you came over in 1980, correct? Like, yes. It was very open, right? Um, or was there still a lot of, you know, xenophobia? We don't want you here because you're not. They didn't know. I have no familiarity with that at all. It may, see, I came to the state of Kansas, right? And what I, what happened to me? I met hundreds, if not thousands, of people who welcomed me, uh, no matter what, and they didn't judge me. They didn't think my name was weird. They didn't right. care. They wanted to see what kind of person I was. And to see the content of my character, as somebody famous said once, um, and whether I could do the job, and whether I'm a decent yeah, man. Yeah. Um, and as soon as they make up your mind, they are made up their mind about that. It felt like I was born there in Kansas. In fact, that's why I'm doing the medical school in the state of Kansas. I feel like full circle. Time, time to give back. Yeah, that's <laughs> one of the things I want to mention, just to to point out what this situation was like for someone who is not Russian but Jewish, during that time period, and even after that time period, I started going to uh, the, the Soviet Union in 1983. Right. If you were born in St. Petersburg, it would say on your, you had a domestic passport. Right. Which you had a show everywhere. And then on your passport, it would say St. Petersburg. If you were born in Moscow, it would say Moscow. But no matter where you were from, right. if, you were a, if you were Jewish, you'd, the passport would say Jew. You know, and when you would bring that up to a, an official there, which I did when I was there, why? Right. Did, well, it says that because he is. I mean, it was this total disconnection from from the implication of what that meant. Right. You know, if you know, if it, it was just beyond belief that they would, you know, they understood what they were doing, but they would never, you know, acknowledge it or recognize it. Let me get back to to one one previous thing before we move ahead to to Kansas and other th things. What was the seminal event that, that flicked the switch that allowed you to leave? You, so you're on, you're on the refuse Nick list. They're, they want to put you, you know, in Siberia in the army or worse. 
you know, your father's not working. They could arrest him at any time. You have a brother. You have a mother. So what happened? You know, not every not every refusenik was able to get out. So how did you get out? What took place that made that happen? A clerk, really, just a lady uh, in the uh, visa office who was processing our applications, or not processing them. Right. <laughs> and uh, she, by whatever providence or who knows what uh, the reason was, but she um, got very sick suddenly and unexpectedly. And she had a, a very malignant form of brain tumor. And we were the only ones who could actually find a place for her where she could be operated on. Huh. During those days, there was only one person in the entire country who happened to be our friend who could actually have a chance of survive, you know, rescuing her. So she had surgery. Right. You, your family arranged it, we right? We arranged it, and uh, she wow. did not die. She went back to work, and what she did when she went back to work, she just moved our files to a different pile. It's that, <laughs> it's that primitive. <laughs> Soviet Union was a primitive country. Um, and she just moved it to, from refusenik pile to non-refusenik pile, <laughs> and we got 10 days to leave the country. Amazing. Now, granted, they said you have 10 days and you could bring 10 kilograms, about 20 pounds worth of luggage, which... 20 pounds? Which would be pretty much five books that I had, <laughs> couldn't part with. <laughs> but uh, There was no carry-on. No, no, no carry-on, no nothing. <laughs> and they gave us uh, an opportunity to exchange $82.50. So when you leave the country, you have $82.50. For, the whole, for each person or the whole family? For each person. For each person. Yes. So I bought shoes in Italy. That's the first thing I had to do. Good move. Because they broke my shoes at the border. Well, I was a smart Alec, 20-something, uh -huh. and the border patrol guy asked me, he says, what's in your boots? And I said, well, the usual stuff, because I couldn't help it. <laughs> my <And> feet. <laughs> he says, what's the usual stuff? I said, well, diamond, emeralds, uh -huh. rubies, and... He didn't care for the joke, so he says, take them off, and they broke the boots. So I had to, I had to buy new shoes as soon as I got out of the country. <laughs> Last time there there goes my $82. <laughs> so, so you're here, you're working in an emergency room, then you started some businesses. Why don't we talk about the progression from there until sort of now, how you, you, know, how you got from Kansas to Las Vegas and now back doing some you know, significant work in, in Kansas again. Yes, I, um, I bought a country club and a restaurant in Shawnee, Kansas. It was called Cotton Eye Joe's, where I used to DJ and play country music. And everyone was surprised that I knew so much about country music, but some miraculous reason I did. Um, so that was a very interesting experience. And then uh, I kind of liked doing business work, and I started you know, studying technology, and I got master's in computer science, and I started a few tech companies uh, later on. So you moved away from medicine? I moved away from medicine into computer science mostly. Genetic algorithms, neural networks, all that stuff was very medical kind of sounding to me, and it was fascinating, so I couldn't resist it. Do you remember the first time you left the United States to travel ab abroad again for the first time after coming here? And where did you go? I went to Paris. What for? Uh, I got married, and we went on a honeymoon. We went to Paris, then we, I drove through <laughs> entire France, and we hit some wineries. And, uh, it Good was, choice. It was, it, was, 
It was excellent, yes. Where did you meet your wife? I met my wife in Kansas City. Nice. She's from uh, Connecticut, but she moved to Kansas City for work, and we had a business meeting because I had a brilliant business idea, and she didn't care for my business <laughs> idea, but she thought to have another reason to talk. So <laughs> we did. It's a good story, actually. So I want to move away from you for a minute, and we'll come back to you. So there's this war. It's not just a conflict. There's a war between Russia and Ukraine. You, you've been to every, probably every republic of the, the 15 republics that made up this former Soviet Union. I know you spend time in Ukraine. You know Ukrainians. You have friends that are Ukrainians. You have people that are related to you that are Russians. You know, what would you say to our listeners about what's going on there? What's your take as somebody that was born in that area and, and have a different understanding of what's going on? and have studied in Russian schools the history of that whole region and area. That's much different than the average American. The only person that can compete with you is somebody that probably, you know, is a, is right. a Russian studies professional. Other than that, no one else would have the kind of understanding that you would have. So what would you say to our listeners about what's going on there? What's your take on it? Yeah, that is a little bit easier for me to understand than a Mexican immigrant, probably. Sure. I've been to those cities that we see on the news. I've been to Kherson. Uh, I haven't been to Bucha because it wasn't much of a city, well, and it's kind of been erased uh, by now. Um, but uh, I've been to Odessa many times. I spent most of my summers when I was a child in Crimea because that's where the Black Sea beaches are. Mm. That's the resort area right. for most of the Russians for centuries. Um, Ukraine and Russia has, as some of your listeners or many probably know, is a complicated history. It's going back centuries and centuries and centuries ago. In fact, the birthplace of Russia is Kiev. Mm. Kiev is about almost 500 years older than Moscow. Moscow did not exist. It wasn't even a village. And Kiev was a major, uh, major oh. cultural center. So Ukraine hasn't been independent throughout their history maybe for a few short-lived years. I think they were independent between 1918 to 2021. Mm. Um, after the big empires fell apart, the Habsburgs, the Ottomans, and the Russian Empire, Polish-Lithuanian Empire, which owned Ukraine for a long time as well, they all periodically would go into Ukraine and mm. declare it's their territory, and then the next empire would come. It's been kind of a tragedy of Ukrainian people for as their history. Um, so this is probably the first time they have a chance to be independent country. Mm. Uh, and the world mostly supports it, except Russia didn't care for it much, right. as we noticed. Are you surprised at their resolve in fighting the way they're fighting, or no? That's not... I think the person who should be more surprised at the resolve is Putin, yeah. because... I don't think they anticipated that um, because Putin in their many speeches and many things that he said and wrote before, and many Russians believe that, that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. Mm. Unfortunately, Ukrainians, or majority of them, 60 plus percent, don't feel that way any longer. But Russians still do. So it is kind of like the girlfriend that you still think you love, but she doesn't really want to be with you. Right. It's... You know, there's very little you can do if she doesn't want to be with you. So, and I think this particular military operation, as they call it, 
I think actually it's consolidated that resolve, uh, and Ukrainians sure. feel much more Ukrainianized than they have before. So it had and the opposite effect. It had the opposite effect. I think it backfired. Uh, and um, I'm not sure they realize it yet, but it's inevitable. You really can't, no one can win war anymore. Uh, winning the war means someone has to surrender. And it is unlikely that Ukrainians going to surrender. So this war cannot be won by any party. I don't think he could beat Russia either. Do you think Putin remains in place for the duration? Or is he, because it's a, he's under a lot of, it appears, well, pressure? Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, I hope not, but it's hard to say. Uh, the uh, totalitarian leaders have a propensity to be very careful and right. stay in power longer than they can or should. Right. You know, Stalin comes to mind. <laughs> you know how uh, he ended up. That Yes, and, and that lasted for a very long time. Right. You know, what surprised me in the whole thing, it's kind of a little bit different from your questions, is um, it's not necessarily what Russia did. I wasn't surprised by that uh, or how Ukrainians respond. I'm surprised by United States foreign policy. Right. That is a little bit different. You know, in 2008... Uh, under similar circumstances, Russia attacked the country of Georgia, which is also their former republic. Right. Not Georgia right. with Atlanta in it, but <laughs> Georgia with Belize in it. Right. And uh, it was very similar dynamic. They had uh, announced and actually kind of en route to be members of NATO, Georgia, still right. are. And Russians attacked them. Um, and there's a separatist movements in Georgia very similar to what's happening in Ukraine. And I remember pretty well what happened. Nothing happened. Uh, and that, uh, in, in, we had two different administrations throughout this conflict. One was George Bush administration and the other one was uh, uh, Barack, Barack Obama. Neither did anything. And uh, they kind of didn't like it. And they said, we don't like it when you attack other countries. But nothing happened. And I think... I don't know that for sure, but I think it emboldened Putin because he said, well, I just did that. Without impunity, right, right, without right. no and, fear. Yes, and so basically then, for some reason, the world responded to the Ukrainian conflict in a dramatically different fashion. And I think that surprised not just Putin, but the entire Country. Russian government. Wow. And I don't know why that happened. I, I just don't know if we have a comprehensive foreign policies that are consistent. Arnie, what do you think? I'm curious. Well, a, a couple of things. One is you have to understand who Putin is as a person. He was a KGB operative. Right. He was trained by the KGB. He was trained under, you know, Marxist-Lenin theory and, you know, and the Soviet Union and didn't like the fact that uh, Gorbachev and others uh, – you know, led to the, uh, you know, disintegration of the Soviet Union. You know, it was 15 countries, 15 republics, but essentially 15 countries, and then it became one. They were on their own. Right. And while they forge relationships and have closer relationships with some countries than others, like with Belarus, for example, um, they lost a lot of stature in the world by losing all these other things. So he, he as a person with his training and background, he was... You know, his goal in life, his stamp he wanted to leave was, you know, the resurrection as much as he could of the former Soviet Union. The problem is that the world has changed and that 
as I call it, thuggish approach to things in a nuanced world is hard to continue to, you know, deliver. Right. We made maybe a mistake in 2008 by standing back, and that emboldened him. But when you get involved, it's a very complex set of circumstances, which he's faced. You know, he has NATO supplying weapons to the Ukrainians. He has all the media attention to what's going on, and he's shielding a lot of his own people, but not all of them. They know kind of what's going on in the rest of the world. And, you know, and, and you know, he's 70 now. He's older. There's some speculation he has medical issues, and which may include, you know, some dementia even. Um, and really? um, it's, it, you know, it, it's it's tough. He... He is in a tough position. If he was in a chess game, he's in a very tough position because he only looks at the board a certain way. Would you think that's sort of a fair assessment of, of what's going on? Definitely, yeah. And uh, well, plus he doesn't drink. And a <laughs> Russian who doesn't drink can't be trusted. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we don't know if he doesn't drink. Allegedly, he doesn't drink. And uh, they're very... Um, little information about him because that's not right. a, it's not an open society mm -hmm. still it's pretty much it's not soviet union quite but it's pretty uh, controlled the media outlets pretty much controlled by the government um just like the soviet union used to do um and it's a little bit more challenging to control it because we have social media internet you name it but uh still they're still doing a very good job controlling it because most of the TV, radio stations, right. they're, they're controlled by the right. government and Putin himself personally. Well, and then the other issue that emerged on this, which made it complex for him, is that the Wagner Group, right. which has a very powerful, ruthless guy at the helm of it, Putin thought he was his guy. But this guy has his own ambitions. You know, I always describe Russia, my, from my perspective, as there are pigs at the trough and pigs trying to get to the trough. Right. And the Wagner Group and these 15, 25,000 mercenaries, you know, are trying to, you know, have, you know, visions of grandeur. Established, right. I mean, 25,000 mercenaries could take the Kremlin. I mean, there's no question about that. So, I mean, so you're Putin, you're trying to deal with this. You have a guy who's got a private army who's helping you in the Ukraine. And all of a sudden he turns on you and, you know, and you're a little paranoid to begin with. You wouldn't want to be in his shoes trying to, trying to, chess play your way out of what's going on because there's too many uncontrollable uh, um, how does variables. This, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole for a second. No, well, how does this impact what's going on in China and does Xi Jinping see what's happening there and think about well, what we're going to do with Taiwan and says maybe we shouldn't and his country's weaker, right, because of what's going on there. Well, it's a combination of things, and I'll let Vadim respond to this, but a combination of things. You also see opportunity to grasp places. When Russians can't concentrate on all these other places ah. like Africa, he can move in and solidify. For resources. For resources and, and relationships and, uh, you know, and allies and all that kind of stuff. You can oh, swoop yeah. right in. You can be very predatory in this environment when you're, when you're right. focused in one part of the world. Distracted. Yes. And then uh, the, the entire history of Russia and China that matter um it color history colors your perspective and mm. affects your culture for a long time um in the russian culture i'm not really sure they're afraid of losing wars they haven't lost many they lost a few minor wars they lost the war into 
to Japan in 1905. Right. They lost the Swedish war. In fact, Stalin did lose that war um, in Finland. Um, but mostly, they're not afraid of that. What they're afraid of is their own people. <laughs> and that's throughout their history. It's not new. This is not some Soviet communist right. idea. Um, they always had Russian war word for their revolt is pretty scary to them. Right, sure. And they have revolt. And uh, in fact, that's what happened in 1917. That revolution right, right, is, right. the world knows it, it was revolt, really, just another revolt once again in Russia. And they're pretty much afraid of it. I suspect they might be afraid of that in China. Don't know that. But I do know that Russians are not really afraid of foreign powers right. that much, including North Atlantic Treaty. That's, they're not really afraid. They're afraid of their own people. Which Forever. It's been, we're talking a thousand years of being afraid of it. Because they're the ones who take them out. Right. Absolutely. So to Putin... It's an internal like, job. Yes. So yeah. like you say, Arnie, you know, to Putin, the Prigozhin kind of, that's too close to home and to the source of their fear. Um, that's the revolt that, that they're afraid of. That they're most fearful yes. of. Let's do a quick ID. Our guest is Dr. Vadim Levitin, our return guest. Yes. On what do you know? On our th third show that he's back. We clarified that when <laughs> we were off the second air. Second in person. So, Vadim, you're returning to your your professional roots by getting involved in the newest medical school in the United States in, in Wichita, Kansas. So tell me how that came about, and, wh and what's your role in there, and what's going on with that school? Yeah, that's probably the most exciting project in the last 10 years that I've been involved in. Um, and uh, it's for the first time in my life, I actually forced my way in. I went to the group that were thinking of opening a medical school, and it's a very expensive proposition and complex project. And I said, well, you should put me on the board because these are Kansas people. They're my people. You know nothing about them. And they'll go like, you were born in <laughs> Moscow. Go like, that may be technically right. true. But these are my people. You, you, They're your you, people. You don't know Kansas, and I do. And I actually feel that I wasn't completely making it up. Um, <laughs> second, I said, I'm the only one here who had startups. And medical school or not, it's a startup. Yeah. In fact, it's technology-intensive startup. And the third reason is that I'm the only medical doctor here. You guys are all smart PhDs. <laughs> And so you should put me on the board, and I think they just surrendered to that push. They go, what like, a yeah, okay, thing. fine, okay, go ahead. And then I was elected to be the chair. Now we have, I just I came back from Wichita. We had the second year um, white court ceremony for our students. It's a new class, 137 students, 53% um, are women. That's great. And uh, it, it was. That's a significant number of new students for a second-year class, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, my God. It's a state-of-the-art medical school. Everything is just brand new. How was it funded? It, it was a joint venture between a local Wichita organization called Riverside Foundation okay. and the Chicago-based, probably one of the uh, higher education, best uh, education systems in the country. It's called TCS. So, and it is an expensive thing. It's close to $100 million to start with. Wow. Yes, and you yeah. have to get accreditation and all of that. But it's definitely... Addressing one of the critical issues in the state of Kansas. Well, it's a, cr a critical issue in the whole country, right? Uh, the number of Definitely. doctors is decreasing. And, and the population is yeah. increasing. Absolutely. And, and particularly in a state like Kansas, which is rural, as is Montana, it's very hard to find primary care physicians who want to live in rural America. 
Completely. Arnie, our two of our new neighbors are from Kansas City and our doctors. Yes. A dentist and a, and a uh, endodontist. Yes. They're and probably still Chiefs fans, though. They are. <laughs> I know they are. <laughs> yeah, if you live in Kansas City, you have to be. That's it. That's the journeyman card there. True. But you you also have the issue that when you graduate medical school and you take your residency, if you're a specialist, you usually end up most of the time wherever your residency is, is staying there. And there aren't a lot of residencies in Butte, Montana, or in, uh, you know, Glendive, or in, uh, you know, small towns in, in Kansas, or even big towns, even in Wichita. So how, you know, does the medical school address this at all? Is that an important issue for them? I mean, the Kansas medical school doesn't want all their graduates to, to leave Kansas, Montana doesn't have a medical school. We have a relationship with the University of Washington School, and we do residencies here at our hospitals. Right. And part, part of the reason we do that is to try to attract doctors to stay after their residency. So how does that, that all playing out right now in America? Well, first of all, I think that I would like to invite anyone from Montana to come to our school in Wichita, Kansas. They're going to love it, and hopefully they'll stay in the state of Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, uh, the medical school addresses it from the beginning. Our medical school actually is unusual in a way that our students will see their first real-life patients within the first year of their schooling. Mm. Usually it comes in the third year of medical school. So since they come to see this, uh, the patients in the first year, we had to address number one issue, and it's called clinical rotations. Because mm. students need to get access to those patients. So right. They need to go to the hospital, the clinic, they see physicians. So, in fact, it's a requirement from the accrediting body that you have enough clinical rotations before you could actually invite students. So we have plenty of clinical rotations because Wichita and the Wichita area is relatively developed. However, later on, as you said, Arnie, when they graduate and they go to, if they're looking for residency in immunology, it's going to be hard to find in the state of Kansas unless you go to Kansas City. So they go to wherever, Miami, right, right. and 70% of residency uh, graduates, they stay wherever the residency was, unfortunately, for some of us. Um, right. And it's Unless only it's normal because that's where they became practicing physicians. So one of the issues that we have in Kansas, and I suspect you have in Montana, is providing decentralized opportunities for right. people who want to progress after medical school because... Medicine is uh, is not like you just graduate medical school, you're a doctor. You, you're kind of technically a doctor, but you have to learn how to be one right. after well, you finish medical school. The interesting story, you may not know this, Scott, because it happened a couple of, right when you first came here, I think. There was a, was a group that wanted to put an osteopathic medical school remember that. in Missoula. And they couldn't do it. They moved on. They actually ended up putting it in Sacramento, California, because the hospitals wouldn't the doctors rebelled and they didn't want to do ha have any more work and they refused to take more residency students than they already had and the residency students that they had were from out of you know from university of washington and the administrators of the hospitals here could not talk they they didn't want to browbeat they didn't want to you know make it you to upset their physician well doctors. they didn't want to say you take more residencies or i fire you cuz right. that would not that that's putting you know, more oil on the fire, so to speak. Right. But they couldn't convince the doctors to do that. And so, as Vadim pointed out, without going to the accrediting body and say you have enough clinical rotations and residencies, we didn't get a medical school in Montana. Too bad. We I know. should have. 
It would have been better. We, well, our we population went around, grew. They went around to every major hospital in the state, and the physicians felt they were already overworked. You know, they, we don't have that many primary care physicians. A lot of them were retiring. We have one of the older populations of primary care physicians right. in the country. They didn't want to take on more students. They would, you know, they're tired. Of, they, they felt they were overwhelmed with the job they already had. They were seeing too many patients. My primary care physician, Missoula, just retired, I think, at 65. He's just, you know, done. Done. You know, and uh, I'm going to be seen next time by a nurse practitioner. Which is BS. You know, which is a, I'm you know, so I'm saying it's a, it's a, it's a problem everywhere. But fortunately, you were able to, you know, convince the community there to, uh, you know, maybe there's a different population, a different demographic of the of the physicians, but they were willing to accept more rotations and, uh, you know, more residencies. Oh, I could be very persuasive. Um, <laughs> as but, a doctor and as a businessman, mm-hmm. talk about the business of medicine, because that's been completely upended, right? Over Certainly with the insurance companies wielding the power they have. The services that, as a patient, I'm getting now versus 20 years ago are vastly different. Mm-hmm. How do you talk? How do you address that in your role as chairman? Yeah, the um, <clears throat> it, it's kind of easy. There's always an escape goat, you know, <laughs> right? Right. So depending on your perspective and maybe your place in life in the society, it's either you blame doctors or you blame the government, or there's always someone. Someone you find whoever is guilty. Um, the problem is very complex, actually, and it stems from the fact that our entire healthcare system hasn't been designed by us, mm. unlike most countries in the world. It just evolved, it developed, and it had many different reiterations throughout different times and different decades and different, different ways how people perceive the world, different political climates, different governments. And so because of this, we have this kind of a patchwork that not really qualifies as a system. It's, a, for the sake of argument, it's, it's a many different systems within mm. a one mega system. Um, it's, it's a, you know, in fact, your hospital on one street could have prices that are very different from the exactly similar hospital on the other side of the street. That's yeah. just crazy. It doesn't work in any other industry like that. But it does in healthcare. So our entire healthcare system really should be designed, and it's not that difficult <laughs> to fix. Uh, at least I don't think it's is difficult to fix. But it doesn't require fixing. It requires the system design, um, not the patchwork of evolved. No one would start a system mm-hmm. that would look like what the one we have. Right, because it's not a system. It's not a system. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, and, and it has a lot of political, you know, moving parts to it. I'm you know? amazed how doctors have become salespeople and they're selling you to do certain things or to try certain things or this. I mean, I have never been hassled or hustled more. Your brother's a doctor. So, well, my just brother's a doctor. so you hear that you hear the stories as well. Right. But I'm just talking about the sleep center here in town and being chased by everybody that's seen me today because they need me to do X therapy. And until I do, their job is incomplete. It's not like they just pass me along. I've never seen that before. Not quite like this. So at some point, where does the Hippocratic Oath, right? <laughs> like, isn't that the, isn't that yeah. the tenets do of... Do no harm, right? Do no harm, even if... Well, I mean, so where does it all shake out, Vadim? Yeah, so in, in, in this scenario... 
doctors are the scapegoat. And, you know, <laughs> and it's very possible that right. some of them are what you describe. However, let's get into this, okay? Uh, I have a physician uh, who is a part of a group. There's 750 physicians in that group. It's a corporation. Yeah, totally. He's just a Ford factory assembly worker, basically. The pressure on him to produce how fast is enormous. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, since we Googleize the entire world, everyone is a doctor now. Totally. Because they could look it up. Right. And go like, yeah, I know exactly what schizophrenia is. I just looked it up on Google. So I don't need your advice. Many people have very little respect for doctors nowadays. Because they say, Why? Well, because the information's so available or? Because it's easy to get. They go, like, right. yeah, I just read it. Mayo Clinic says that's what that is. Well, maybe, <laughs> and maybe it isn't. Um, so it, 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 the environment is changing dramatically. So uh, worldwide, about 30% of the people go to see doctors. 70% of the people in the world really do not. And it's probably changing in our country. Um, people rely on whatever the remedy is that they acquired. Through well, they see it on TV. I mean, how, how many, how many right. yeah. medical... You know, pharmaceutical commercials right. are on every single day on TV. Right. Well, the younger generation, the scariest thing is the younger generation, 20-somethings like my son, who thinks getting a deviated septum is as easy to fix as, you know, completing a level on a video game. Right. <laughs> and it's not. And I'm like, you don't get, like, it's not an immediate thing. You don't just right. make an appointment, go in, and it's getting your oil changed. Right. Let's take a quick break. Our guest is Dr. Vadim Levitin. Back after this. Arnie, we are back with our final segment with Dr. Vadim Levitin. So if people want to find out more about the Kansas College of Osteopathic Medicine, how do they find out about that? How do they find out about enrolling? How do they find out about supporting it? How do they find out about the work you're doing? It's the newest school in the country. Some people may be just interested to see what kind of technology and what kind of equipment and what kind of you know level you're operating at. How do they find this all out? Uh, it is a very different medical school from most medical schools. First of all, because it's brand new, so it responded to the modern world in a very different way. It's very technologically intensive and advanced school. Hmm. Um, in addition to this, similar, you know, the conversation we had earlier a few minutes ago about how physicians um, kind of running a business, working yes. a business. We're trying to produce empathic physicians. They're different. Uh, in fact, uh, I just had a little presentation for them last week, and uh, one of my key things for them was a quote from the uh, Galeno, which is a 15th century physician, who said that if after seeing a doctor, a patient does not feel better, you're not a doctor. Huh. It didn't, he didn't say that you have to do anything save the patient, fix the patient. The patient has to feel better just because you were there. Right. And so we're kind of thinking that we're succeeding in this. Uh, we produce um, different kind of physicians in, in, the, in Wichita, Kansas. Um, to find out is kansashealthsciencecenter.org. It's online. You will go, you see our board and the faculty and the and incredible faculty, in fact. Um, You'll see the technology at work. Uh, it's completely immersive, holographic, anatomy classes. It, it's magnificent. It is mind-boggling. And we have a new curriculum that we're just introducing this year, which 
AI because these physicians would have practitioners left and right who would be artificial intelligence assistants. Whether you want it or not, that's inevitable. And they need to understand how to work with them, how to make sure that they enrich it. Well, it's an information-intensive science. Sure. Who is better at information than computers and network computers at that? Artificial intelligence. There's not. I'm not. Gonna, there's no quick answer to this. But in the last minute, how does AI five years from now? How does AI impact medical that industry in the most um, profound way that we would see? It would make physicians dramatically better. It would make nurse practitioners, nurses, every every healthcare professional will be faced with a different level of knowledge about similar things. And we don't have to wait five years. In fact, it's already there, depending on the specialty. So if you go to radiology, for example, most of the radiology now is read by AI already and signed by uh -huh. a radiologist. But the fact of the matter is the computers are better at certain things sure. and at many things. Um, as if Rich Julius, the computer scientist, said once that, you know, this whole musing about what computers can or cannot do is based on only human pride. They can do eventually everything. We would have to come up with uh, solutions how we're going to deal with it. Well, when, as soon as I can have babies, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> Vadim, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. See you next week, Artie. Hey, Scott, see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO.